Hey guys, hope you're doing well. Hope you've had a good week so far. I'm so glad we're able to study God's Word this week once again. I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 37. You remember last week, we finally come to a place where we see a turning point in the life and career of Joseph. Now, after he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, right, there's a sense in which I'm sure uh, Joseph understood that this was about to be a turning point. Maybe, just maybe, I'm about to get released from prison. However, there is no way possible that Joseph understood just how significant and remarkable this turning point was going to be. I mean, God, as we're about to see in our passage, in his grace, mercy, and providence, uh, takes Joseph from the pit and exalts him to the pinnacle of life. The question is, how's Joseph going to respond? So let's go ahead and look at our passage today. Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 37. Hear the word of God. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonetheth Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah's priest of On. So Joseph went over out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of, those, of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenethath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, bore, him, uh, bore those children to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt, of course, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all of the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. 
So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all of the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all of the earth. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for yet another day where we are alive and have breath in our lungs, that we can come to your word together and separately uh, to not only be informed by your, your word, but transformed by it. So we pray that you would send your spirit to us, that you do a mighty work in our hearts and use us for your glory. Uh, speak to us, our Lord, for your servants listen. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Brothers, it's one thing to live uh, faithfully and obediently when things are not going well in our lives. It's quite another uh, to be faithful when everything is going well. And I think the, the reason for that is, is that when life isn't going well, when we're experiencing suffering and disappointments, when we're on our knees, as it were, there's only one place to look, and that's up. When we're in the pit of life, the only place to look is up to the cross. It's easy for us to be dependent upon God for absolutely all things when we're in the pit. However, when things are going well, and say, for example, we're at the pinnacle of life, well, in that position, there's a whole lot of different places to look. It seems to me when things are going well, when we're experiencing a prosperity in one fashion or another, um, we tend to believe our own press clippings. We start to put stock in our self-sufficiency and our know-how and in our capability. And when we start thinking that way and living that way, when our need for God isn't as apparent as it once was, we stop thinking about God. He's no longer in the forefront of our mind. He's in the back of our mind. And as Christians, particularly Christian leaders, when we do that, well, well nothing good happens. Thankfully, that's not the case of Joseph. <laughs> I mean, Joseph, by all accounts, was a phenomenal leader, both spiritually and in the civil arena. Phenomenal leader. But his fruit as a believer and as a leader did not come, what we see in this text, it did not come from his know-how. It did not come from his education. It did not come from his ability, his likability, or his capability. It came from a profound dependence upon God and an unwavering faithfulness in him. That's where his fruitfulness came from. And furthermore, what we see in the greater story of Joseph, including this passage, that faithfulness did not happen overnight, did it? No, God had been cultivating it over the course of these past 13 years. Joseph was living the paradigm for the Christian life, which Jesus puts on display in Philippians 2, that there will be suffering, then exaltation, suffering before glory. And so for these 13 years, God was, was shaping Joseph, as we've talked about. He was honing him in, sharpening him, sanctifying him, brothers, for this precise redemptive moment in history. And ultimately what we learn is, is that when we live with a great confidence in God's love and his concern and his providence in the midst of suffering, it's then that we're ready and able to be fruitful and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Joseph was the same in the pit as he was at the pinnacle of life. 
Now, there's three qualities we see in Joseph's life as a believer and as a leader uh, that we want to emulate as disciples of Jesus Christ. How can we live faithfully at the pinnacle of life when it's so hard to do so? First off, we must have a transcending belief in the greatness of God. We see this in verses 37 through 45. Now, remember, in chapter 40, when Joseph was still in prison, all he really wanted to do was to, to be freed. That's what he desired more than anything else. But remember, God had a greater purpose, had a greater plan. God not only wanted Joseph to be free from prison, but he wanted him to be the deliverer of people. Remember, he was, he was shaping him to be this redemptive instrument, this instrument of redemption and deliverance. That's what God wanted for him. And for that to happen, Pharaoh needed to be indebted to Joseph's wisdom, right? His wisdom rivaled that of Solomon, and Pharaoh needed to be in a position where he needed that. He was indebted to it. And that's, of course, what, what happened last week in last week's passage, um, he just wowed Pharaoh with his with his wisdom, and and uh, Pharaoh sought to essentially bless Joseph because of it. And what we have in our passes is a surefire rags to riches story. He exalts Joseph to a degree I doubt very seriously that Joseph thought possible. So, before we get any further, let's just let's just think about this exaltation. What happened? Well, first off, Pharaoh empowered Joseph. After Joseph's counsel, counsel on the spot, right then and there, before everybody, you know, just moments before he had been in prison, and right there on the spot, Pharaoh ceremonially bestowed symbols of power on Joseph. First off, he gave him a signet ring. Now, brothers, this ain't jewelry, all right? This is the signet ring of Pharaoh. Pharaoh took it off his own finger and put it on the hand of Joseph. Now, as you may know, a signet ring, it bears the image of the, the, the beholder. So on this ring, there was the image of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would, you know, if there was a document to be signed and sealed, or if he had an edict or an order, he would put his signet ring, put his stamp, tie his honor up in that command, and people would do it. So when he put this ring on Joseph's hand, that meant that this former peasant boy, a guy who was prisoner moments ago is now able to uh, carry out Pharaoh-like authority in the land of Egypt. All right, so Joseph had immense power. Uh, furthermore, he received fine linen. Okay, this isn't just a, a suit or something. This is the robe of victory, the very clothes that one would need if they were going to command Egypt. And that's what Joseph received. Lastly, he received a gold chain. Again, this just ain't jewelry. This is a sign of honor with untold value. So not only is Joseph now an, uh, a political power, he's an economic one too. Joseph has power in the greatest land, humanly speaking, on the world. Secondly, he was enthroned. Not only was he empowered by Pharaoh, but he was also enthroned. We see this in verses 43 through 44. Um, there was an inaugural parade going about, and it wasn't really for Pharaoh. It was for Joseph. Joseph got the second chariot in this parade, which meant that he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. 
Now, Pharaoh says, now, I'm on the throne, I'm Pharaoh, so I'm really in command, but you're the second in command. But we know, listen, Pharaoh is dependent on, on Joseph for absolutely everything at this point. Joseph is the main cheese in Egypt. Now, that must have shocked Joseph, but what was even crazier was that Pharaoh sent out uh, modern equivalent secret service agents throughout the land commanding people to bow before Joseph. Now, just think of this change of events. For 13 years, Joseph had been scraping his knees as a servant, bowing before other people. Now, the greatest military, the greatest country in the world was bowing before Joseph. Brothers, this is a playing out, a literal playing out of Genesis 37, of those visions, those dreams that, jo that Joseph had, that everybody would bow to him. Now, in that dream, he, he dreamed his family was bowing to him, right? But, but here's Egypt and Pharaoh bowing to him. Are you kidding me? So he was enthroned. And not only did he get a parade, there was also words of investiture. In verse 44, Pharaoh essentially says, Joseph, no action will ever be taken in this land without your say-so. Brothers, <laughs> this sucker was now the, the leader. He was the commander of Egypt. Are you kidding me? Rags to riches. So he was empowered. He was enthroned. Lastly, of course, he was engrafted. He was Egyptianized. He was given a pagan name, so it would be easier for him to muck it up with other pagan people. He was given a wife in the land, or rather in the family of the priests of Egypt, which, you know, history tells us was actually the family of Pharaoh himself. So, so listen, Joseph is a member of the most powerful family on the world. Okay, so this is, this is a surefire rags to riches. I like how FBI, F.B. Meyer summarizes this. He says, <laughs> it's really cool how he phrases it. He says, it was a wonderful ascent for Joseph, a sheer and a single bound from the dungeons to the steps of the throne. His father rebuked him, but Pharaoh welcomes him. His brothers despised him. Now the proudest priesthood of the world opens its ranks to him. The hands were hard with toils of a slave. Now they are adorned with a signet ring. The coat of many colors was torn from him, but exchanged for the vestures of fine linen from the closet of a king. Thirteen years had passed, and Joseph had gone from a shepherd boy to assuming control of the world's mightiest kingdom. Rags to riches. But brothers, here's the deal. Even though in this exalted state, uh, Joseph had never been more safe in the past 13 years. That's true. But his soul had never been in more danger. I mean, just think about all the rags to riches stories and movies that we like, biopics, you know, Walk the Line with Johnny Cash, one of my personal favorites, or Ray about Ray Charles, love that one too. And, and both those stories, those guys uh, start from nothing. I mean, they were poor. They didn't have a nickel to their name, but through hard work and determination and faithfulness to their craft, they, they, they rose to heights they had never dreamed of. And they, they enjoyed this prosperity. I mean, they were essentially kings in their own right. But once at that level, what happened? Their, their lives went to hell in a handbasket. They forgot who they were. They forgot where they had come from. They forgot what got them there. They believed their own press clippings. And their lives were ruined. That was a very real temptation for Joseph. 
I mean, just think about this. Joseph, I mean, he was the prince of Egypt. He technically did not need God, right? Because he had servants, he had power, he had authority, he had money to do anything that he needed. He was also Egyptianized. And humanly speaking, the family that he was now a part of was much more important and much more impressive than God's covenant family, the, the family of his father and brothers. He had every reason, humanly speaking, to compromise in the faith. <laughs> but, but, but what's remarkable is that Joseph didn't. I mean, he had a legit temptation, a temptation I'm sure that you and I struggle with as those in, in this prosperous world in which we live, even as middle-class folks. Uh, listen, it's very easy for us to think that we got here in our own doing, that we don't need the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce says many Christians have been impoverished um, by prosperity. And that was a temptation that, that Joseph had, but he didn't do it. He lived faithfully. What's remarkable is that he remained faithful in the pit. But what's really a sign of God's divine grace is that on the throne of Egypt, he remained faithful to God. How in the world did he do that? Well, the defining virtue for Joseph, both as a believer and as a leader, brothers, was his massive concept of God. Listen, Joseph was not a small godder. Joseph was a big godder. God dominated his worldview. He, he, he viewed life in light of who God was and what God has done, what God has promised to do. I mean, just look at his coronation. He never once promoted himself, even before his coronation, when, when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, as we saw last week. What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh was just fawning all over Joseph. Oh, Joseph, you're so wise. Joseph, you're so great. What did Joseph do? Joseph didn't steal the glory. He reflected the praises. He said, Joseph, he said, Pharaoh, this isn't me. This is Yahweh. Yahweh has given me this gift. Yahweh is the interpreter of dreams. Yahweh deserves the glory. Time and time again, he said that last week. Now, during his coronation, not once did uh, was he braggadocious. Not once did he have false humility. He remained silent. Did you notice that? He didn't say one word. It was as if he was saying, by uh, his lack of words, he was saying, Pharaoh, I am here because of my God, not because of you, not because of me, but because of my God. That's why I'm here. And that's at least what the commentators say if you and I didn't pick up on it. But that's what he was saying. This is, this is all of God's doing, not ours. And furthermore, when it really hit the fan and when the tough got going, what did Pharaoh say? At the end of this passage, he says, Egypt, when the famine comes, go to Joseph. That is to say, go to Joseph's God. Uh, he's the one that will save you, is, is what Pharaoh was saying. Now, just think about that. Through, through Joseph's demeanor, through his actions, from what he said and did not say. Remember, Pharaoh, he was the greatest God in Egypt. But because of Joseph, he was forced to recognize that there was a God that was greater than him. It was not a God of Egypt. It was the God of, of Joseph. And this God was capable, he was powerful, and he could be trusted. Friends, that, that's just absolutely remarkable. Joseph was able to be the same person in the pit and at the pinnacle of life because of his God-centeredness. He was dominated by God. And that actually even affected jo or, uh, Pharaoh. 
It was a witness to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't come to faith, but at least he recognized who this God was. It's astounding. The point is clear. God's choicest servants, the most faithful and fruitful servants, have always been those who have had a massive concept of God. Now, the other reason that Joseph was able to remain faithful at the pinnacle of life was because of his unshakable belief in God's word. And we see this in verses 46 through 49. Um, he had an unshakable belief in God's word. Where do we see that? First off, we see it in his work ethic. Listen, Joseph, <laughs> at this exalted state, had every reason uh, to take a couple years off, brothers. I mean, listen, put your feet up, Joe. He just went through the ringer. He was abused and humiliated, mocked by his family. He was wrongfully accused by this very lustful woman, thrown in prison. And for 13 years, he had been essentially a slave. Now he's exalted. He's living the plush life. Take a moment for yourself, Joseph. But notice, not once did he even acquiesce to the temptation of living the lifestyles of the Niles rich and famous. Not once. But he labored vigorously. Joseph understood that this, that this power that he had been given had been given to him to serve others. He was living in light of, of God's word. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was going to use him in a powerful way. He didn't know how or why, but he knew that God was going to use him. And through Pharaoh's dreams, he knew that 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 God had given them this revelation that famine was coming. So, so what did Joseph do? He labored vigorously. He lived in light of God's word. He put it to action. And Moses makes this clear in verses 46 through 49. We get six words of labor used in those short amount of verses. Went out twice, gathered once, stored up, put up twice. He was, he was working and laboring like a madman because he was living in light of God's word. He believed God's word and he responded to it. He was faithful because he believed God's word. We see this also in Joseph's vision for his own life. Now, we might ask ourselves, uh, why did Joseph labor so hard for a pagan people. Why in the world did he do that, right? Because remember, up until this point, he had no idea that his actions um, were going to eventually bless his own family and his own kindred and people. He thought he was just working for Egypt. And even though these Egyptians were not like the Egyptians of Moses' day, they were still pagans. They were still the religious other. They were still technically enemies. So why in the world was he working so hard to bless these people? The only answer is, is because the vision for his life of what he was supposed to be about and do was shaped by God's word. I'm thinking primarily about Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, when God um, promised Abraham that him and his family would be a blessing, they were a blessing, to be a blessing to the other nations. It was through them that God was going to bless the world. That's one of those pinnacle uh, passages that, that really stands at the center of the entirety of the Bible, that God blesses his people in order to be a blessing to others. 
Joseph was a member of that covenant family. And furthermore, he knew that God was going to use him in some special way for his redemptive purposes. This promise, this this truth dominated his life. It was the umbrella under which he lived. It was the foundation for, for his vision, uh, for his life. And so he saw his power and his authority as nothing other than a means to bless people. I mean, it's that Philippians 2 paradigm again. He did not count his power and uh, his privilege as something to be taken advantage of, but he emptied himself in order to bless other people. His vision for his own life, even in prosperity, was dominated by God's word. I love what H.B. Charles says. He has this uh, phrase for God's word, the use of it. He says, it is God's will. He says, it's the will of God that the spirit of God would use the word of God to transform the people of God into the image of the Son of God. <laughs> I love that. But we see that take place in jo Joseph's life, don't we? God was shaping Joseph through his word, molding him, shaping him to be a redemptive instrument in this world, to be a blessing to the world. Brothers, can we say the same is true of us? Listen, the most important people in history have never been pharaohs, have never been kings or presidents or the rich and famous. They have always been God's people who believed God's word, took it seriously, and lived in light of it. Brothers, which words are we listening to? Which voices? Are we listening to the talking heads of this world or are we listening to God's word? Is the vision for our life, our family's life, is it, is it shaped by the priorities of the American dream or is it shaped by God's word? Joseph was the same in the pit and at the pinnacle of life because he had an unshakable belief in God's word. But there's a third reason. The last reason that Joe remained faithful in his new position and was truly spiritually successful was because he had a circumstance-defying belief in God's presence. He believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was committed to him, that God cared about him, that God loved him, that God was with him. That is why in the face of political, financial, and, and spiritual forces and obstacles and struggles, he remained faithful because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, brothers, that God was with him. Now, where do we see that? We see that in verses 50 through 57, primarily in the, in the Hebrew names that he gives his kids. Guys, I love this. I love word studies, particularly word studies on names given in the Bible because they're always significant. And these names could be a lesson in their own right. But here's a couple of nuggets. His first child, he names Manasseh. Okay, that means he who uh, causes to forget. Kind of a strange name to give your kid, but we see why in this passage. Uh, Joseph named his son that because God had caused him to forget all of his hardships and pain, uh, painful experiences as a child growing up in his father's house. Now listen, when Joseph names his son that, he is not saying that he no longer thinks about his issues, that he no longer thinks about his family, nor is he saying that those memories are no longer painful for him. 
they're still sources of grief. Of course they would be. But what he is saying, brothers, is that God in his grace has lifted those experiences, lifted those burdens to such a degree that Joseph was actually able to move on. That God in his kindness lifted those burdens so that he could begin living life again. Where do we get that? Well, we get that in a Hebrew word that's smack dab in the middle of the name Manasseh. There's a word there called Nassah. Nassah means to lift up. What he is saying is that God has lifted my burden. God is in the business of lifting things for his people. He lifts our iniquity. You see that in Isaiah. He lifts our sins. He also lifts our burdens. He doesn't always lift them completely. Job Joseph didn't forget about his pain, but he is saying that God had come alongside him and lifted these burdens to such a degree that he was able to, to live life. And brothers, God does that for us too. In his grace, in his mercy, he, he is committed to us. And when we turn to him, we will see that he lifts our burdens too. He doesn't always remove our burdens or our griefs or our sorrows in this life, but, but he does bear the load for us. He, he, he does, and he does a marvelous work through those pains too, as we've seen time and time again, but God lifts those things. His intention is not to plow us into the ground or to snuff us out. He, he cares for us and he lifts these burdens when we turn to him. And Joseph experienced that. Now with the second name, Ephraim, <laughs> what does that mean? It really it means to be fruitful, but you could also say, looking at the text and how it's used elsewhere, that it means to be doubly fruitful. In his affliction, God caused Joseph to be doubly fruitful. I think if you look at Joseph's life, the whole narrative, particularly in this passage, um, we'll see that his life was essentially the playing out of John chapter 15, when Jesus teaches about the fruitfulness of his disciples. Do you remember that passage? Uh, Jesus tells us, his disciples, that God, he's the vine dresser. He's the gardener. Jesus is the true vine. And you, are, you and I, as, as his followers, as those united to him, are the smaller vines. We're the branches. And so as a gardener, as the gardener, God is basically attaching us to the trellis of Jesus. We're united to him. And so he is guiding us. He is shaping us. He, he is lifting us up in Jesus. And as he does that, we become fruitful, but not just fruitful, doubly fruitful. He prunes those branches that aren't working right. We, we see this in our own gardening, don't we? Um, with bushes, plants, we, we trim back the, the dead branches, those that aren't working. And, and even though that might be painful to us, right, it causes us to be more fruitful than we were before. And we see that in our own gardening. God was doing that in Joseph's life. He was using those trials and those tribulations to build him, to sanctify him, to cause him to be more fruitful, particularly for this moment in redemptive history. And brothers, that's what Jesus says he does to us. He's with us. He's committed to us. He's not going to kill us. He's not going to snuff us out. Sometimes it hurts, but, but he's there with us, holding us, causing us to be 
doubly fruitful in Jesus and not fruitful as the world defines it. He is causing us to be spiritually fruitful, fruit that lasts, Jesus says. And Joseph knew that. Joseph knew that God was with him in the pit, causing him to be fruitful, causing him to to grow. And here at the pinnacle of life, in the fruition of that fruit, he knew exactly what got him there. He knew that God was committed to him, that God was with him, that God was causing him to be fruitful. Joseph was the same man in the pit and at the pinnacle. Joseph had a transcending belief in the greatness of God. He had an unshakable belief in God's word, and he had a defying belief in God's presence, that God was committed to him, that God was for him. Brothers, that is the, that is the template for every soul and every age for the people of God. If you and I are going to be faithful, fruitful followers of Jesus, we need those same things. We need a transcending belief in the greatness of God. Our, our view of life and of ourselves and of everything needs to be dominated by the greatness of God. We need to be committed to his word, shaped by it, and we must trust that he is with us both in the pit and at the pinnacle. But having said that, okay, listen, <laughs> that's true, but... Having said that, we are not the Joseph in this story. We are the ones that are starving. We're the ones that need Joseph. Listen, in, in any Bible story, we are never the hero. In the whole David and Goliath story, you and I are not David. We are the cowards behind David. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Joseph, as we've seen, and that is certainly the case for this passage, too. We see that in a lot of places, but my favorite place is verse 55. When famine comes, Pharaoh says to all the inhabitants of Egypt, whatever Joseph says, you shall do. Meaning, he's the one that's in power and authority. He knows what he's doing. You can trust him to do what he says. Whatever he says to you, do. Does that sound recognizable to you? I wonder if Mary knew that when she said the same thing in John chapter 2, she was, she was taking up the words of Pharaoh. Remember in John chapter 2, it's the wedding feast at Cana, the miracle. Uh, what happened? The, the wine ran out, right? And it was just social disaster. And the servants were, were freaking out. And, and what did Mary say? Mary said, go to my son, go to Jesus and do whatever he says, meaning my son is going to take care of it. If you have need, go to him, do what he says, because he's going to do it. You can trust him. Isn't that amazing? When people were suffering from physical hunger, God sent a savior and his name was Joseph. When people are suffering from, phys- or from spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, God sends the greater Savior, and his name is Jesus. Brothers, when you are suffering, when you're in drought, spiritual drought, when, when you are going through the ringer, or if you are experiencing great prosperity, when you are living faithfully like Joseph, or when you're not living faithfully like Joseph, this passage reminds us, doesn't it, to go to Jesus. 
Are you hungry, brothers? Jesus says, come to me, for I am the bread of life. Are you thirsty, brothers? Jesus says, come to me and drink, and you will never be thirsty again. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your lot is, whether if you're enjoying your lot or if you are not, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, whatever your labor is, whatever your burden is, Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. Listen to the words of Pharaoh. Listen to the words of Mary. Listen to the invitation of Jesus. Brothers, we must go to Jesus and he will do exactly what he promises to do. He will give us rest. And that really is the difference, right, between an unfaithful servant and a faithful one, a fruitful one and a non-fruitful one. What makes us faithful, what makes us fruitful, what lifts us up when we fall, brothers, is when we go to the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who says, come to me. Praise be to the Lord.